There's a saying, and it's, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck and swims like a duck, what does that mean? I say it means it's going to win some football games, but it's saying you can tell what something is by what it does, right? It's nature drives what it does. It has implications. Nature does. We are in a series, I call it the gospel of the kingdom because that's what Jesus calls it. Some would call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first recorded sermon of Jesus that he gives publicly, brilliant. And Jesus is gonna say something about what we are and then the implications of what we are, brilliant. So it's in Matthew chapter five, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Twice it says you are. You are salt. Not, hey, go try to be salty. Jesus says, you are light. Not, hey, go try to turn your light on. You are salt. You are light. Jesus does warn that there are conditions that can make our salt or our light AWOL. It can be lost. It can be hidden. So we gotta be careful. But ultimately, this is what you are. And the implications become what you do. So first of all, you are salt. 2,000 years ago, salt was very expensive. The English word salary comes from the Latin word for salt because soldiers were often paid their salary in salt. That's how valuable salt was. And salt's different than money, right? Or gold. Gold is great. You can hold it together, but it doesn't do anything for you. It has no use until you spend it. Salt is both valuable and useful. You can use it. So it would be like Jesus saying today, you're a 10. You're varsity. You're Olympic gold medalist. That's what he's saying, right? Over and over, the scriptures are encouraging believers to know what we are, what happens the moment we become citizens of the kingdom. So in the book of Ephesians, Paul opens just one of the most brilliant books in the Bible. He opens it up by saying, this is what I am praying for believers, that they might know this. So it's Ephesians chapter one, verse 17. 
So he says this, this is his prayer, that the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul's prayer is, we might know the riches of the inheritance, the greatness of his power towards us. He continues on in chapter three. It's like a theme of this. So in chapter three, verse 80 says this, his job is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God. Over and over, scripture is, don't you know what you are? Don't you know how valuable you are? That you are holy, you're royal, you're a priesthood. Only believers are thrice holy royal citizens. Do you know that? We're royal by birth, born again into the kingdom. We're royal by adoption, adopted into the kingdom. And we are royal by marriage, married into the kingdom. We are thrice holy citizens of the kingdom. Brilliant. The Bible says you are perfect because you're wrapped and clothed in Christ's righteousness. The Bible says that we are more than conquerors. Have you ever just thought what that means? Like, how can you be more than a conqueror? How can you be more than a winner? I think the only way that I can think in my head is the way you're more than a conqueror is that you don't just defeat your enemies, you turn your enemies into your servants, which over and over is what God does throughout the Bible. It's more than just conquering, it's turning those things into the very stuff that makes you a victory, right? We don't work for victory, we work from victory. Listen to me carefully as we go through the gospel of the kingdom. We'll be in this for a couple of months. This is so important. If you don't know your value, the rest of this chapter makes no sense because it just becomes religion. Here's what religion is. Religion is trying to prove you're valuable to God so he'll listen to you doing more things, getting God's attention somehow, jumping around, slashing your body, whatever it is, trying to get God's attention so he will listen to you because you are valuable. That is the antithesis of the gospel of the kingdom. And it leads to either fear that you didn't do enough and God's not gonna listen to you and help you or pride that you did do enough and you become a very intolerable kind of person. The gospel of the kingdom is, listen, you are, are more valuable than the gross domestic product of the universe. You are salt, period. That's the gospel. So I try to think like, what is something today that's a comparison? What's something that is very valuable, but totally overpriced? What would Jesus compare us to today that's valuable, but overpriced? I would say you are a three bedroom, two bath house. That's what you are right now. <laughs> right? That's where it begins. Value. But salt, unlike gold, is useful. That we're supposed to be useful. And 2,000 years ago, salt was used as a preservative. 
So if you killed a cow, you couldn't eat it all. So what you would do with the salt is you would salt the meat and it would preserve it. So during the winter time, you could have something to eat. I think Christians are supposed to be preservers. So for most of my life, I've been a libertarian. That doesn't mean a liberal. A libertarian is someone that says, less rules, more freedom. That I think God has given to you and me free will and we are supposed to make decisions and either reap the good of our decisions or suffer the consequences of the poor decisions. Like that's how you actually grow as a human. So I've been a libertarian for my whole life. At this point, 51, I'm beginning to see the value of conservatism. Now, this is not a party idea. This is conserving the things that you see in society that are beneficial, that keep the society from rotting, where we conserve things like what's true and noble and pure and of good report and just and virtuous and praiseworthy. I can see the value in that now, that we are to be those that preserve society. And not just on those big things, I think everywhere we go and how we engage the world, we're just supposed to be salt preserving it. So a few months ago, about six months ago, my wife and I, we were over in Brookings and we um, had Myron, my nine-year-old, and one of his buddies, Colton. And so we went down to Mill Beach, which is our favorite spot over there. And if you go to Mill Beach, there's just a few parking spots at the bottom. That's all there is. So we drove down there and there was one parking spot left and it was right next to this older suburban. And so I had a bad shoulder. Charity was driving. I'm in the passenger side. I've got the window rolled down, just enjoying the sound of the ocean, all that. So we pull down there. We pull next to this older suburban and this guy has heavy metal just blasting. Like just blasting. And he and his, turns out his fiance, are kind of, he's in the passenger seat, fiance in the driver's seat. And we pull up there and you can see the guys, there's like, if you know Mill Beach, there are some condos on the hill. They're like looking out over their rails, like who in the world, what's going on down there, right? Because it's just absolutely pounding heavy metal, right? So we pull up, there's some, something happening between them. The fiance gets out, she leaves. He's looking over at me. You know, you know how guys can look over at you? He's doing that to me. And he turns it up even louder. Just and rolls down his windows on my side. Just, uh, you're going to listen to my music. And he just kind of keeps just giving me this look. You know the look, like, come on, say something. I want you to say something, right? So I'm just sitting there, I'm smiling. He gets out, he goes to the front of his Suburban. He's got a beer in one hand, a cigarette in the other hand. And he keeps just kind of doing this to me. And just, music is just going. And I'm smiling because I know the music. And I said, hey, Metallica, huh? Ride the lightning. He's like, what? Because I don't look like a guy that knows Metallica or ride the lightning. He's like, huh? So he goes there, turns off the music. You know Metallica? I'm like, well, I know that song. So he comes over, he starts like talking to me, just colorful language, F-bombing this, F-bombing that, right? And just, we're talking for probably eight minutes, nine minutes, tons of F-bombs. Finally, he says, so what do you do for work? I said, I'm a pastor. He just dropped his beer. Shunk. Oh, sorry, man. <laughs> Started the best conversation ever. Turns out he grew up Catholic. Has all these questions about faith and what's going on. Got his girlfriend pregnant when he was 16 years old. Has a just recently adult daughter that moved from Brookings to Eugene that just came out as transgender. And he's wondering, how do I navigate this stuff? 
just confused by life and what's happening. He and his fiance are trying to figure out, what do we do? How do we go forward in our relationship? And my wife at the same time had sat down next to the fiance and my wife just has this brilliant disarming way about her where people are just can be honest with her just from minute one because she just has that presence. And so they're just having this fantastic conversation. He's asking me all these questions. And, and then uh, I wasn't able to play football with Myron and, and Colton because my shoulder was hurting. He's like, man, he turned out he was a semi-pro football player. The dude has a cannon. Pulls out his football, starts playing football with Colton and uh, Myron and then gives Myron this football that he'd had for like, since his football playing days, I just want to give it to him. I'm like, dude, don't do that. No, man, I want to give this to your son. Don't take that away from me. Okay. And he's like, so a Metallica loving pastor. What church do you pastor? <laughs> I'm like, well, it's called Edgeware. Next time I'm in, I'm in Grant's Pass from Brookings, I'm going to that church. I'm like, you're welcome to come. It, the praise won't be Metallica though. Just know that. It'll be great, but it won't be. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to be. Kind answers turn away wrath. Peacemakers, pure in heart, just willing to just wait for that open door. How do I preserve this? How do I add something to this right now? How do I help this situation get better? That's what we're supposed to be, everywhere. Preserving. But number two, salt is flavorful. This to me is number one, right? The number one use is flavor. I know there's a time in life where a doctor will tell you, you can't eat salt anymore. When that day comes, I'm just gonna say, kill me now. It's not worth living anymore, right? Everything will taste like Home Depot spackle. Might as well buy a five gallon bucket and just eat it. Like I'm not doing it. So just write me off then, <laughs> I'm done. Salt flavors, but is never the focus. Salt is supposed to flavor something but it's not supposed to take the focus of that something. So I'll try to give my best example. This was many years ago, probably 12. It was a Sunday. We were at an RCC at the Rogue Bowl. We'd finished up. And my whole crew, my family, extended family, cousins, all of them, we all having lunch at Tacos Locos. I was a little late getting there because of Edgewater. So I pull in, I get there. The adult table is full and there's only one seat left with the kids. So I sit at the kids' table. It's really where I belong. So I was fit right in. So I sat down, the chips came out, and I said, here's how you eat a chip. And I pulled out some salt. I put a little bit of salt on the chip, and then I dipped it in the salsa, and I ate it. I said, oh, that's so good. And then after the salt came out, the pepper and the Splenda and the sugar and the creamer, and then the kids started experimenting around. So it was great fun. You know what we never said the whole time? Man, that's great salt. What did we say? Wow, that's great chip. Those are great chips. Because salt is never to be the focus. It is just to add a little bit of flavor. That's what it's supposed to do. See, my hope, my desire is that Edgewater flavors Grants Pass. And so I get people that, because of my position, they, they wanna call, they wanna contact and say, hey, what are you doing to market Edgewater? I say, nothing. Well, how do you get your message out? I don't know. Well, don't you wanna get your message out more? No. Well, what are you doing? We're being salt. We're just the flavor. I don't want Edgewater's name to be known. I want the name of Jesus to be known. 
That's the only name that matters. Edgewater will save no one. Jesus saves people. So I'm not worried about marketing or we have no budget for marketing. We don't do that. It's just not our DNA. We say we are gonna focus on Jesus and we're just gonna add a little bit of flavor to him and that's it. We're gonna flavor him in Grants Pass and Rogue River and Cape Junction and Merlin or wherever we're at. We're just gonna bring flavor to things. And here's how you know you're flavoring right. It's when you're in that prayer group or that Bible study or that job or that boardroom or whatever it is, whatever you're having flavor to, when people say, Man, that was a great Bible study. Not, wow, you are so great and amazing. No, you added just the right flavor and the focus on Jesus that the entire group, the tide raised the whole group up because you were being salt in such a great, brilliant way. That's what I wanna do, just flavor. But the focus is always on Jesus. And there's a warning. Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Obviously, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is always sodium chloride. Here's what Jesus is talking about. The way you got your salt 2,000 years ago in Israel was real simple. You went to the Dead Sea, one of the saltiest places on earth, you would dip a bucket into that. You would let the bucket sit out until all the water evaporated and it would leave behind this white powder. You'd scrape that white powder around, you'd put it into a cup, do whatever, a vessel of some sort, and then you would sell it as salt and it would taste salty. What would happen though is this, if that salt, the humidity, or if it got somehow wet, what would happen is the sodium chloride would actually dissolve out and it would leave behind all the other chemicals that are in the, in the Dead Sea, magnesium and boron, and they taste bitter and nasty. And so when that would happen, people would just toss that out because it was no good anymore because it wasn't salty anymore. Jesus says, when those that are supposed to be salt are no longer salty, they become trampled underfoot. They're unnoticed they're unimportant, they've lost their purpose, they're not preserving, they're not flavoring. When the church has the same exact culture as the world, we've lost our salt. When we taste the same, look the same, act the same, same values, Jesus says, the church becomes worthless. Throw it out, it's not important, it doesn't matter. It's good for one thing, gravel, to be trampled on. We have to guard ourselves as a church and as individuals from being diluted by the culture that we live in. It's what we've had to do for 2000 years, guard against being diluted by the culture that we live in. If we don't, we're just Home Depot spackling. Good luck with that, right? So you are salt. Number two, you are light. Not try to be light, not turn on the light. You are light. Here's what that means. My life is illuminating to the people that I am connected with what Christianity is. How sobering is that? Because there's a whole bunch of people that I'm connected with, they're not reading their Bible. They're not trying to learn about Christianity. The way that they're learning and thinking about Christianity is one way. How does Matt look? How does Matt live? Because I am light to them. 
I am the illumination of what it looks like to be a Christian. How sobering is that? And Jesus says something that I find fascinating. He says, your light illuminates all in the house. How interesting is that? Where does my light begin? In ministry in front of lots of people? On a Sunday morning for an hour? No. The most important light I ever shine is inside my home, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year, because that's where it's real and that's where it's hard. Every one of us can fake it for an hour on a Sunday, can't we? Like all of us have had this day where you're getting ready to go to church and it's just a nightmare. Kids are fighting you, spouse is fighting you. It's just disaster. You finally get them into the car, you're late, you're driving like crazy, and there are morons in the road in front of you. Why did all the morons come out right now? What is wrong with this place? Your kids are fighting, you're like, if you don't calm down, I'm turning this vehicle around and we're going home. And they're like, please do, I hate church. Church is boring. Like, well, I'm not gonna do that. And your wife is like, don't make threats you can't keep. Oh, I'll make a threat I can keep, woman. You get here, there's no parking, the parking lot's torp. Why do they do the parking like this right now? I knew we should have come to the 720. Man, the nine o'clock's just crazy, right? Oh, you get out, you slam your door, you're walking up, you're just mad. And then the greeter's like, hey, how are you guys doing today? Awesome, praise God. His mercies are new every morning. Cause we can fake it for an hour. Home is a lot harder. Home is where it's real. The foundation for my light as a man is my home. Dads, moms, how's your light in your home? It's your darkness. Kids will know it. Your kids will know it. They have a dark radar that picks up when we are hypocrites. And I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. The best news of the gospel of the kingdom is we can go to the great physician, pure in heart. Remember we did that last week, being honest with God, not playing games with God. Oh, there's darkness right now. I'm bringing it into my home. And it's a struggle I have. Help me. Help me to be the light that I know I'm supposed to be. Help me be the light that I am. Take away this darkness. We've got groups and pastors and everything to help you walk this out. Because the Bible says this, that we're supposed to get together to provoke each other to love and good works, that we need each other. We need like, okay, I, okay, bro, I love how you do that. Okay, I love how you, do, oh, that's gonna help me. And that's the best news of the gospel of the kingdom, that when my heart is exposed for its darkness, I get to come to the light and be recharged and be renewed and to be helped. Brilliant. You are light. But notice Jesus says, you're a lamp. Not the sun at high noon, bearing down on people, baking them. Not a laser in today's world, right? No. Here's a great thing about a lamp. Lamps are nice, aren't they? They're soft, they're gentle, they're warm, they're inviting, they're kind. That's what lamps are. Lasers aren't that way. And the reason why we're lamps and not lasers or the sun at high noon is because we live in a very messy world. Right? We looked at that last week, broken spirits, mourning people, right? That's who the kingdom is for. And for some reason, I don't know how this got out there. There is this idea in our culture, and in our world, that church is the place for pretty put together people. 
And if you're not pretty and put together, don't go there. Who would possibly want to put that message out? Right? The hater of our souls. And you know the biggest problem with that message? The Bible. It's full of really messy, screwed up people that God still uses brilliantly. No church would hire Moses. Like, hey, do you have any felons? Uh, yeah, I'm a murderer. Oh, well, man, we'll find a place for you. Um, I'm not sure where yet, but we'll figure it out. We can't hire you though. Got a temper problem. He's constantly losing his temper. And what does God do? Uses him greatly over and over. We're lamps, not lasers. I know what I'm gonna say right now will be misunderstood and purposely misunderstood at some point. I don't care anymore because it needs to be said. We're lamps, not lasers. So a year ago, 24th of June, 2022, something happened that I did not think would happen in my lifetime. The Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Unbelievable that the unborn are now protected, right? It's just the most amazing thing. And we should celebrate that because the church has always stood for life from conception to the grave. Smart, stupid. Funny, not funny. Pretty, ugly. Rich, poor, does not matter. Every one of us is an image bearer of God, worthy of dignity, respect, and defense. That's the way the church has always been, right? So man, massive win, brilliant, amazing. But let's say there's some young lady and she's gone to Edgewater and she has heard that abortion is murder. She's gone to our youth group on Thursday nights and she's heard abstinence, man, wait till you get married and then celebrate. That's the way God designed it. It's the way it works correctly. Do it this way, right? So she knows that. Her parents have told her that as well. So church is telling her that. Home, uh, her youth group is telling her that. Uh, her parents are telling her that. And then she has sex and gets pregnant. What's she gonna do? Because every one of us has a Genesis 3 defense when things go bad. We run and we hide, we do damage control. Let's sew some figs together and get this thing taken care of. Let's just cover this up, damage control. Where's that girl turn? Where will she get help without judgment? Will she get it at Edgewater? Will she get it at a church? Or will she get it at Planned Parenthood? And that breaks my heart. Because I know the long-term damage that abortion can do to a woman's heart. It breaks my heart. But we're supposed to be lamps, not lasers. The Bible is full of really messy people that God grabs a hold of and does brilliant things with them. That we need to, yes, stand for life. Defend the unborn. Preach against sexual promiscuity and all the problems that come with it. No doubt about it. Do that. Hard stand for truth. And then we have to be like Jesus, the friend of sinners. And that's a hard tension to walk out. Very hard. We have to proclaim abortion is murder. But we also have to say to the woman that had an abortion, come meet Jesus, your great physician who can heal you and can take what the enemy would want to use for evil and can turn it for good. We have to balance that well because we're lamps, not lasers. And we gotta be that kind of people that are the, the option that others turn to 
because this world does not have the answers. It just makes it worse and worse and worse and worse. And we have the answer. And what I'm finding more and more as I grow older and older, it's the tensions. That's where you find great strength. It's when you can just sit in the middle of tension, like I gotta do both these at the same time. I don't know how to do it. Jesus, give me the right kind of attitude to be a lamp for these people. That's what we're supposed to do, right? And there's a warning. You can take your light and you can hide it. If you're an old school Christian like me, you sing this song, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. Won't let Satan it out, right? We know that, great song. How do we make sure that our lights are shining? I think we always have to come back to Romans 1.16. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We have an enemy, we have a culture that wants to make you and me ashamed of the gospel now. Be ashamed of what you believe. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, singular, nothing else, it is the power of God and salvation. We just keep coming back to, you need Jesus. You need the great physician. Man, that's how you make sure your light keeps shining bright. It's the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm gonna proclaim it over and over and over. I found Treasure Island. Come join me, right? That's what we do. And then there's this power-packed little phrase. Jesus ends it by saying, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Light shining and good works are connected right there, are they not? If my light is shining in such a way that people see it, that what they're seeing is, Good works and my good works cause them to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Light and good works are connected by Jesus. As important as it is for what we say, and it's important, what we do is more important. Jesus has a parable in Matthew 21 about that. Two sons, one says, one does. Jesus says, it's the one that does. That's the one. What we say and what we do both matter, but man, good works really, really matter. That was brought home to me this week. So Monday, my wife and I are out. We're actually doing something in town. This guy's driving this truck. He just stops. He's like, hey, are you a landscaper? I'm like, no. Uh, is this an Edgewater house? He's just trying to figure something out. I'm like, no. He goes, are you, are you connected to Edgewater at all? I'm like, I'm a pastor there. Ah, he said, I've heard about that church. I'm like, oh, have you? Yeah, I know about it. Yeah, so do I. I know a little bit about it. Yep. He goes, yeah, my buddies, my friends, my couple of my buddies were up there with their wives and they went to a church service there a while back. And when they were leaving, they said they were going through the foyer there and there was lesbians kissing and hugging right there. Nobody cared. First time in my life, I was speechless. I just went, if I was holding a beer, I would have dropped it. Just, I was just like, can I go now? <laughs> can I be dismissed? This is wrong on so many levels. So I just, he can tell body language, I want out, right? He's not a fan. Okay, you're not a fan. Get in line. No problem. 
But then he says, hey, wait, 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 wait. He goes, does Edgewater, does Edgewater buy property and uh, build houses? I'm like, oh no, where's this gonna go? Oh no. He goes, do, do you buy property and do you guys build houses and then sell them to people for like a no, low mortgage rate? I said, yeah. It's about seven years ago, we were kind of brainstorming like, what's some of the big needs in Grants Pass? What's something that we can tackle? What's a good work that would, that would be something that would change Grants Pass? And we felt like housing has become unaffordable. What if we could do some kind of a system where we bridge and help people that are hardworking, stuck in a rent cycle and help them get into their own homes? That was the whole idea, right? And so I said, yeah, yeah, explained all that. So we've done over a dozen homes. There's 50 right now on the docket. Just amazing, amazing thing. I didn't say that to him, 50 on the docket. You know, that, yeah, we're doing that. This is what this guy said, not a fan. He goes, yeah, that's awesome. And then left. Like, well, I got one, 50-50, okay. <laughs> not a fan, but guess what? Good works. Hey, your good works. Good works matter. Good works matter. When a bunch of men take out their time and go up to Wade Comerford's yard and they cut down 30 cords of wood and get it seasoned this whole summer so that during the winter, when widows who don't have money and need to keep warm, they can just deliver them cords of wood, good works matter. When a bunch of people give and go down to Carmen Serdan where the most handicapped of orphans I've ever seen in my life are congregated there and we care for them and love them and demonstrate salt and light to them. Yeah, that matters. When a group that's getting together right now and they're headed over to Uganda to build a big chicken coop where 500 chickens can lay their eggs and all those eggs can then pay for kids to go get an education so that they can have a different life than their parents and their parents before them and their grandparents, generations have had because they have a different life. Yeah, good works matter, right? When you guys pay for churches to be built in India and wells to be drilled in India. Good works matter. When you take a foster care kid into your home, good works matter. When you're a CASA, a child advocate, just saying, I am advocating for this child that no one else will advocate for. I'm gonna stand in the gap for them. Yeah, that matters. I can go on and on and on and on. Good works matter. Good works matter. Our light shines brightest in our good works. I keep praying, God, what's the next one? What's the next one? And I cannot shake from my head, it's drugs. Is there any bigger blight on America? Is there any bigger blight right now on the world than drugs? Oh man, we have a connection to the creator and sustainer of the universe. Man, we should be able to solve this thing. If you're a prayer, put that on your prayer list. How do we help on this? We help those that are addicted to drugs, right? And Jesus says, when you're doing this, your light shining with good works, people will say, they'll give glory to your father who is in heaven. Glory has one destination and one destination alone. Chapter six, Jesus just hammers on this. If you're doing good things to be seen of men, it is worthless, worthless. That glory has one destination and it's God alone. And we gotta be careful because it's a trap. It's a hard one. I've told you this before, first five years, six years of Edgewater, when I would preach, this was really, you could sum up my preaching like this. Please like me, aren't I smart? That's the way I preached. Now, most of that's gone in my life for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm not that smart. So that's gone. And number two, I don't really care what people think about me anymore. I just don't care. I tell the truth and trust Jesus. 
And the reason why I do that is because Jesus loves me and my wife loves me and my kids tolerate me and that's enough, <laughs> right? Now it's just tell the truth, tr trust Jesus. And part of that no doubt is success, right? If I was preaching to 50 people, I might be worried about offending a couple couples because that could be half of my church. So there's some freedom right there. But here's what I know about Edgewater. 99% of what happens here, probably even higher than that, 99.9% .9 of what happens here has nothing to do with me. I'm 0.1% and I get all the glory. I get such a messed up system, right? Totally screwed up. But it's just, I mean, how do you get away from that? I don't know. All I can say is it's not right. And you might be thinking in your mind right now, oh, Matt's just being modest. No, I'm a pomp pompous, arrogant jerk. That's really what I am. It's the truth. The volunteers, the other pastors, that Jesus has put together something here that I'm just saying, wow, I'll throw my ring into the hat. That's awesome. And I've just been swept along by what Jesus has decided to do here, right? We have people that come here that go all around the nation, putting in good stuff, like good sound system, good, they're like, what in Grant's Pass? What in the world is this insanity, right? Well, not me, not me at all. Like we get to do baptisms here. Baptisms happen every Sunday here. Now, what did we do to get somebody baptized? Like two minutes, that's what we did. But a bunch of you have run lap after lap after lap with people, loving them, being light to them praying for them, sharing the good news with them, moving, helping, doing whatever, good works for them. And then they come here and we get the two minutes and we're like, ah, Edgewater baptized them, big whoop. <laughs> if it wasn't for you guys, there'd be no one there to be baptized. Does that make sense? Man, glory has one destination. We have five loaves and two fish and we just offer them to Jesus. And then he says, watch me do what I'm gonna do. Watch me do what I'm going to do. Like it amazes me to come in here and see the smiling greeters and see the kids wing that is flourishing and see people that are hundreds of times better than me sitting here. I just say, thank you, Jesus. Glory goes to one place and one place alone to him. And what we'll see as we go through the gospel of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount is what you're gonna see is over and over, there's this idea that's woven into it. And it's what the father says to you and me. It's this, good job, Matt. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now go. Good job. Now go. That's the constant theme. Good job, Matt. You're salt. Right? You're salt. You're not trying to be salt, not working for a salary, not trying to earn something. You are salt. You are treasure. Now go display it to this world that needs to see it. I love that. It's always the order. Always the order, good job, now go for it. Communion, the order. Bread, then the cup. The inverse of religion. Religion is clean yourself up, get yourself valuable, and then you can partake. Jesus says, I'll take you exactly like you are. It's okay not to be okay, but I'm not gonna leave you that way. The cup, I'm gonna cleanse you and purify you and transform you. This is the gospel of the kingdom.